If you have a copy of God's Word, we're in Genesis chapter 9 for a few minutes tonight. Uh, last couple of messages <clears throat> in our study of Noah, the second leg through our study of uh, the book of Genesis, the book of Origins, this book of firsts that forms the foundation of all Scripture. I've said before, if you don't have a proper understanding of the book of Genesis and what's in the book of Genesis, you'll have a hard time understanding what's in the rest of the Bible. Unpacking the Word of God is so important in a proper way, and you have to know Genesis in order to do that. And tonight we're in Genesis chapter 9 for a few minutes, beginning in verse 18. The sons of Noah, who went forth from the ark, were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. And from the people of the whole earth, or from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside, Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. And the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Well, I guess he did. After 950 years. I don't know about the 350 years. That sounds like a grace gift from God, but I don't know about that. 950 years old. I'm 54 years old, and I feel old. I can't imagine 950 years, but that's a good, fruitful, and uh, well-lived life. Although what we have before us tonight is not the prettiest of pictures, is it? I do a lot of reading, and uh, more than any other type of literature, I enjoy reading biographies. I like reading biographies of great people, great men and women, and I have several of them. I buy books faster than I can keep up with them. And my wife's threatened for years to throw me out of the house because there are just piles of them all around my study. I see one I like, and I think, well, I'll get to that. And I just buy them faster than I can get to them. But I enjoy biographies. The thing about biographies of great people is that in just about every one of them, you get to a chapter that you wish wasn't there. Y'all know what I'm talking about? 
Every great person, no matter how great the person is, they're still a flawed person. Even the greatest people had parts of their life. There's always a skeleton in the closet somewhere. Maybe it was in their younger life. Maybe uh, it was something that happened in the middle of their life. Uh, maybe it was something that went terribly wrong at the end of their life. Kind of has happened with President Nixon. All this wonderful history. And that man's, I read a biography of him recently. And all the wonderful things that he had seen and done and experienced in his life. Only to fail miserably at the very end. And you know, we kind of get a snapshot of ugliness here at the end of Noah's life. And it really is a sad thing. We get to this last chapter and it uncovers behavior that seems really out of place for Noah because uh, we're faced at first with a Noah who is described in the Bible as a righteous man. He's a blameless man. He's even described in chapter 6 a man who walked with God. And then we read what we do here tonight and we're left kind of wondering why. I mean, what happened? Um, this is a man that God had made an irrevocable covenant with. And now we open up the Bible to chapter 9 and we find ready, uh, Noah's kind of ready for a, a detox center. And it's not the last chapter in Noah's life by any means, but here's what's important. It's the last chapter we have in Noah's life. I'm sure Noah went on, lived, obviously lived another 350 years and lots of great things probably happened in those intervening 350 years. We're just not told what they were. God leaves us with kind of a negative picture of uh, Noah. And I think that um, part of the reason that that's true is because he wants us to learn something. There's a takeaway here I think that's very important. And a part of that is our understanding that it's not only important to start the race well in terms of your walk with the Lord. I think as important as it is to start your walk with the Lord strong, it's even more important to finish the race well. God wants us to end well, to finish strong. I think he wants the winter years of our lives to be just as important, just as meaningful, just as purposive, just as growing, just as impactful as the spring years of our lives were. He wants us to start well, run well, and God wants us certainly to finish well. And there's some important dynamics that go along with that I think we need to be reminded of tonight. The first is that finishing well means learning to make wise choices. Part of the reason that the Bible is here as a tool for us is because God wants us to use it not only to understand his character and not only to understand spiritual truth, but God wants us to learn how to make wise choices. And this is part of the reason why the narrative of the Bible is so important. Those Bible characters and those Bible stories are there to show us as much how to do right. They're there to show us how to avoid doing wrong. We don't really have full biographies of many of these Bible characters. Most of what we get are just snapshots. But the reality is all of these Bible characters, for the most part, are flawed men and women. Very rarely do you have a story of a biblical character that doesn't have a checkpoint in it somewhere along the line. 
And what we have here is kind of the checkpoint in the life of Noah. It's a sad spectacle, and the problem is revealed in verses 20 and 21. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank the wine and became <coughs> drunk <coughs> and lay uncovered in his tent. Y'all are out there coughing tonight, starting to get me coughing this evening. He got drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And so what happens is the flood's over. Now we got dry ground again. Noah last week came out of the ark. All the animals came out. Noah has dominion over the animals, over the soil, over the land. And uh, everybody begins to be fruitful and multiply again. And now we see him following in the footsteps of his father and his grandfather. And he becomes a farmer he becomes a worker of the soil, and part of that involved growing of grapes. Anything wrong with growing grapes? Nothing wrong with growing grapes, uh, and he does that. Nothing wrong with cultivating wine, for that matter. But you do know that drunkenness is a sin before God, do you not? Drunkenness is never something that pleases the Lord. It's never God-honoring behavior. And this is, what, this is the last picture we see of Noah. The last picture we see of Noah is a drunk and naked Noah. I mean, it's not a pretty picture. And the spiritual takeaway is really not hard to understand. It's simply this. It doesn't matter where you are in life, no matter who you are, where you are, what point you are in your walk with the Lord, sin can always creep up on you and affect your tomorrow. And that's why you always want to be wise with respect to how you live. The Bible teaches that we need not live as fools but is wise, redeeming the time and making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Billy Graham, who just passed away, had a practice in his life of reading a chapter out of the book of Proverbs every day of every month of his life. <clears throat> there are 31 Proverbs. That's enough. One a day, every day. He read a proverb, not, not a proverb, but a chapter of the Proverbs every day of his life, every month of his life. And that's important. Uh, the thing about Billy Graham is he was a man of integrity. Couldn't touch him. Couldn't lay a finger on him. Never fell. I mean, people shot arrows at him all the time. You can live perfectly and people still, still going to accuse you. They're still going to try to condemn you. And they did him. But every arrow that was fired ended up just bouncing off and falling to the ground because he, was, he lived very wisely. The book of Proverbs is important. Because it's a book of wisdom. Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs for his sons primarily in order to help them to gravitate toward the good by making wise choices and to steer away from the bad and from the evil by learning to avoid foolish choices, walking in the will of God. And the Bible teaches a very New Testament concept, uh, live not as fools but as wise, make the most of every opportunity because the time that we live in is a very evil time. So no matter where you are today, sin can always creep up on you and catch you tomorrow. And that reminds me of the story of Cain that we looked at not too long ago. God was trying to encourage Cain, make a right sacrifice, do it right. God comes up to him, gives him a second chance. And he tells him when he offers him a second chance, you need to be very careful because sin is what? Crouching at your door. And if you don't learn to master sin, sin will eventually creep up on you and it will master you. So learn to rule over it. And this was true for Noah who let his guard down late in life. I mean, this was a man the Bible calls a preacher of righteousness. And he didn't walk in righteousness near the end of his life. He got careless. Uh, 
And he began to drift. And drift is always a slow decline downhill. And this is just another of uh, many illustrations in the Bible of how desperate we are for the grace of God because apart from it, we don't have what it takes to please God. The scripture says there's no one that doeth good, at least not consistently, not even one. And there's all kind of examples in the Bible of men just like Noah that started the race strong but stumbled along the way. Men like Adam, I mean, Adam had the best of everything. Adam lived in a perfect environment. And still stumbled and fell. Uh, You have men like Cain. We talked about him a moment ago. Had the best of homes, the best of training. I mean, his mother and father literally walked in the garden with God. And I'm sure they communicated that to him. But he still, in the face of the best training uh, from godly parents, still made unwise choices. And he fell hard. Moses, same way. Started very strong. Sinned late in his life. There's an unfortunate picture of Noah out in the promised land. And it's not hard to understand, man. Noah, Noah, I think, had suicidal thoughts at times in his life. He's leading 2 million people. I don't, I mean, I, it's hard leading 2,000 people. He's leading 2 million people. I don't know how the man did it. And he came close to bailing out more than once. And the reality was uh, he didn't, but it's easy to see how he loses cool, how he could lose his temper, and he did when God gave him a specific command to speak to the rock in order to get water for his people. Now, keep in mind, those people had been murmuring because they were thirsty and hungry, and he was having to listen to it all day long. And so God says, speak to the rock. And Moses, kind of in a fit of anger, said, it's easier to take out my frustrations by swinging at the rock than it is talking to the rock. And so he picked up a big old stick and just started banging the rock. You ever wanted to bang a rock for whatever reason? You're mad at people at work, mad at people at home, and just want to take out those frustrations in a way that doesn't honor God? Well, it's one thing to have those thoughts. It's another thing to act on them. And he acted on them and just started beating the rock. And you know what? He never, he never got to set foot in the promised land because he basically flagrantly uh, rebelled in the face of God. Listen, <laughs> somebody said one time, don't sweat the small stuff and it's all small stuff. Do you think it mattered to God whether Moses spoke to the rock or struck the rock? I think it mattered a lot to God. God is always in the details. And so here's a guy that had to pay a very steep price near the end of his life because he took matters into his own hands. David did the same thing in his 50s when he slept with Bathsheba. And of course, Solomon, man, Solomon had the best of everything and all the money in the world. He couldn't count all of his riches, but he sinned late in his life compromised his integrity, married all those women and brought women into his harem that weren't his wife. Most all of them were pagan infidels, unbelievers. And as a result, God judged him for it. Kingdom was divided uh, and remained divided for centuries because of it. So you have to be careful. You can be walking really strong with the Lord one day and the devil comes in and tempts you, puts you to the test. Uh, Warren Buffett said it takes 20 years to build a reputation, five minutes to lose it. 
It's one of the great statements of all time because it's very true. Here, Noah done everything right for all these years. I mean, he spent 120 years building the ark and then spent a year above the, uh, aboard the ark, tried to do everything right, preached righteousness, honored God, and all it took was five minutes to lose it. And so you have to be very, very careful. The Bible teaches, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he what? Lest he fall. So you have to be very careful, keep your guard up, pay very careful attention to it. And Noah's sin here is a particular sin. It's the sin of drunkenness. <clears throat> we could talk a lot about alcohol. Boy, that's a subject uh, religious people have loved to talk about for a long time. Christian people in particular, Baptist people in particular, in particular. Um, and with a text like this, the question is raised, well, what is the deal about the Christian and alcohol? And we tend to talk about that in a lighthearted manner. You get a bunch of Baptists together and there's usually a joke that they'll tell about something having to do with fishing and alcohol or something having to do with golf and alcohol or whatever the case uh, might be. And we'd kind of chuckle about it. But here's the thing that I know for sure. Drunkenness is never a laughing matter with God. You know, we can debate about the, the, the merits or the evils of a Christian and social drinking or whatever, but the Bible is very clear. Wine is a mocker. In other words, be very careful because too much of a good thing can wreck your life. Isn't that right? There's always the potential for evil even in something that can be described as good. Wine is a mocker, and strong drink is a brawler. In other words, it leads to, what does that mean? It leads to out-of-control behavior. And you know why that is? Because alcohol is alcohol. It's a narcotic. It's a narcotic. It alters the mind. It alters the mood. It alters behavior. It causes you... Uh, to be put in a situation where there's loss of control when there's too much of it. And so you have to be very, very careful with it. The Bible uh, never really says anything good about alcohol, to be honest with you. Now, there's wine in the Bible, and people drink wine, but it's not like the wine that you buy at the liquor store. Well, you don't even have to go to a liquor store anymore. Just go to Publix or to Winn-Dixie or to Walmart or whatever the case might be. I remember when I was a kid, Christians didn't go. You didn't go to restaurants that served alcohol. Well, you can't go to the grocery store now. You know what I'm saying? If you apply that criteria. And so uh, <laughs> the thing about it is the, the Bible usually, and that's because there's a cautionary thing with respect to it. People drank wine in the New Testament. It's not like wine at the liquor store. It was heavily diluted wine. Because you know what they didn't have in the New Testament? They didn't have sweet tea. They didn't have orange juice. They didn't have Coca-Cola. They didn't have ginger ale. They didn't have root beer. It was a sad world to live in without root beer. They didn't have any of those. How many options do we have today of things to drink? I mean, you can wet your whistle every which way from Sunday. Just go in a convenience store, Right? We got everything in the world to drink. Back in that culture, it was water or wine, and you had to be real careful drinking the water because you're liable to get cholera. Everybody with me? And so wine was one of the, about the only safe thing to drink, but it was heavily diluted. 
Uh, it would take, I'm telling you, you would be, your bladder was in more danger uh, than your liver was back in those days because it was heavily diluted. It was basically wine in the New Testament was basically purified water. It was, I mean, in a, in a, in a Jewish home, it was never straight wine, heavily diluted, usually about four parts water to one part wine, three to four parts water to one part wine. And so it's comparing really apples to oranges. People walk around with the Bible today and say, well, I'm sure there are a bunch of wine drinkers in the Bible. Not like you. Nowhere close. So you'd have to drink a lot of wine in order to become inebriated. And no Jew, Jews rarely became inebriated because it was so socially frowned upon in that culture. And so there's always, uh, you know, here's the thing. We're free in the Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody say amen. And we don't want to be legalistic. Um, but there is an air of caution in the Bible because you read the Bible and the Bible connects alcohol to things like sexual sin directly. Uh, the Bible connects alcohol to arrogance, hot-temperedness, forgetfulness, confusion. That's all in the Bible and it's connected to alcohol. Uh, poverty is another thing. The Bible connects with the abuse of alcohol, we all know certainly that to be true. Some of y'all could give a testimony in here tonight about your raising, how alcohol was abused and you struggled financially through no fault of your own because of it. And of course, in America, we all know this in America today. In fact, they don't call it alcoholism anymore. It's called alcohol use disorder now. We have a new name for it. Uh, and it's about 15% of the American population is technically what we would call alcoholic. That's one out of every eight adults. And I just pulled these statistics today because I wanted fresh statistics. One out of every eight adult uh, adults has alcohol dependency issues. One out of eight. I don't know about you, but if I know you got, if I know that every home I go into has a dog, one out of every eight of them are going to bite me, I ain't going visiting. I ain't going in your house. If the statistic is one out of every eight airplanes that takes off is going to crash, I'm driving tomorrow. Y'all know what I'm saying? One out of every eight. Now, you take that one out of every eight who has alcohol dependency issues and you recalibrate the criteria from all adults to adults under 30, and it's one out of every four American adults under 30 years old has some form of alcohol dependency issue. And a lot of that's skewed by college students. You know what I'm talking about? Who, uh, who skirt the limits as a part of their social life. There's a lot, of, by the way, there's a lot in the news today about gun-related deaths, right? And justifiably so, we ought to be having that conversation. There's about 33,000 gun-related deaths every year in the United States. You know how many deaths there are associated with alcohol? Almost 100,000. I bet three times as many deaths are alcohol-related than gun-related in this country. 
and far more than, I mean, we're talking a lot about opioid addiction and their deaths associated with that, but nowhere close to the alcohol-related deaths. But because it's enjoyed by so many people, it's not seen as a public health issue or a threat to public safety. There's far more of an issue. Now, the Bible doesn't command that we abstain from alcohol. The Bible says Jesus declared all foods clean, and he did. The Apostle Paul told the Colossians, let no one judge you in what you eat or drink. So I'm certainly aware of all of that, but I'm also aware that the Scriptures teach that there are some tests that you and I need to apply to any kind of questionable behavior. You all know that freedom in Christ doesn't give you license to do whatever you want to do. That doesn't mean you can go out, as my granddaddy would say, live like the devil just because you're free in Christ. Man, Baptists have been tagged to that. Well, they believe once you're saved, you're always saved. And all that is is a license to live like you want to live. It is not. No, Christian freedom is not a license to live like you want to live. Christian freedom is not freedom from constraints so much as it is a freedom to become all that I can be in Jesus Christ but that sin has kept me shackled from being. Now I'm liberated to become like Christ, not to become more like the world. Does that make sense? And yet, boy, you talk to a lot of people, and I, I do, I, I'm from a different, I guess I am getting old, I'm just telling you. The social media is changing everything now. And I mean, I see, I see these young guns, people in their 30s and their 20s, and man, I was just raised in a home. You just didn't do it, you know? In fact, it was borderline. You touch it, you're going to hell. And I wouldn't go that far. That's a bit extreme. But I mean, anymore today, you got people associated with church. And you go on social media and they're posting pictures, you know, holding bottles of the heavy stuff. You know, for people to see. And I'm just thinking, okay, I just, I mean, I get it. And I know times change. I'm just trying to figure out how that brings glory to Jesus Christ. Because I don't understand how it does. And so when it comes to any kind of questionable behavior, if you've got something coursing through your mind, should I do this or should I not do this? Here's some tests that you might apply. Question number one. Is this behavior or this decision something that's likely to encourage me to sin? And if the answer to that question is, it probably is behavior that you need to avoid. If it's going to lead down a path that could result in some sinful action or decision, I think that the wise thing to do is to avoid it. Now, just because you're free to do something does not necessarily mean technically that it's beneficial for you. In fact, look at what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6. All things are lawful for me. And you notice that in the Bible, that's in quotation marks. So what Paul is doing is he's quoting uh, a communism of the day. Because, hey, this is what he would hear. All things are lawful for me. And Paul would say, yes, but then what does he say next? But not what? All things, not all things are helpful. Not all things are profitable. So while it may be true that all things are lawful, not, that doesn't mean it's necessarily profitable or helpful for you. And then he says, again, he quotes the communism again, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. 
So if the action is likely to encourage you to sin, best to avoid it. Second, will this action potentially cause spiritual injury to someone else? Here's the decision. The decision, or here's the, uh, here's the issue. The decision that you make about your life and the things that you do with your life don't just have to do with you. There are other people around you. And how that decision affects not only your life, which was question number one, but how that decision potentially affects the lives of others around you is an equally important question. How will this decision likely affect my kids? How will it affect my parents? How will it likely affect my church, my business, the people with whom I work? Will this decision that I'm on the precipice of making cause a spiritual injury to another? And you have to remember that in the kingdom, others are always more important than self. Philippians 2, 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And so in the kingdom of God, love always trumps knowledge. You might know that a certain behavior, a certain decision is perfectly fine in terms of you and your relationship with God. But if it's going to cause somebody else to fall flat of their face or it's going to bring some kind of harm to another person, here's what's more important than your freedom, your love for the other person. Always more significant in the kingdom of God because freedom always involves responsibility. In Romans chapter 14, Paul is talking about the issue of eating certain kinds of food. He does the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 because there was a big debate in the church, not so much over the issue of wine, but over the issue of what kind of meat that you could eat. And there were some... um, The issue was basically this. Certain kinds of meat were used in pagan religious ceremonies. And then once it was used in the ceremony, it would then be put on sale to anybody that wanted to buy it. So there was fresh meat. And then there was meat that had been used in these pagan, ungodly religious ceremonies. You could go down to the meat market And you could buy the fresh meat for $2 a pound or you could buy the meat that had been used in the pagan religious ceremonies for 99 cents a pound. It's the same cut, cook up just the same for the most part and less than half the price, right? So what you had in the church were the so-called strong Christians who said, well, I don't even believe in those pagan gods What difference does that make to me? I'm buying the 99 cents a pound, saving the other dollar, going to the movie tonight, right? But then you had other groups that Paul called the weak believers. They had an eggshell faith, and they were scandalized by that. How can you even lay a finger on meat that had been used in honor of a Roman god? And you're not honoring Christ by doing that. And so you had these 
meat wars that were going on in the church, literally. And so Paul has to address that issue. And one of the things he writes to the Romans, for example, uh, Romans 14 and 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. So he's basically talking to the so-called strong believers who didn't have a problem with it. You don't want to bring the church to a, to, a, to a standstill in terms of its effectiveness over the issue of what kind of meat you eat. If it keeps the peace, spend the other dollar. Love your brothers enough to maintain unity in the body of Christ. He verifies their freedom. Everything is indeed clean. There's nothing wrong with the meat. But it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Now, there's just no way to misinterpret that statement right there. Okay? So if it's going to cause a brouhaha, it doesn't always cause a brouhaha. If it doesn't cause a brouhaha, then you're free to do it within the privacy of your own home. But Paul is making an argument here that's biblical truth. Namely, that in the kingdom of God, my love for my fellow brothers and sisters is more important to me than my freedom to do what I want to do. And I'm always going to defer. You say, well, they're just wrong in their approach. I understand that. But you have to be patient and you have to speak truth into into them and Why not invite them and say, you know what? We're having this disagreement about meat. Let me make sure that you understand what my position is. Because we sure don't want to cause a brouhaha by this deal. But let's just, and slowly but surely, you start bringing these people of weak faith, of legalistic faith, you start bringing them along with you on the road to maturity. And that doesn't always happen quickly. But that's the price tag of love. Everybody tracking with me? That's the sacrifice of love. I do that in order to preserve the harmony of the body. Okay? So in the kingdom, love always trumps knowledge. So is this action going to lead me to sin? If it is going to lead me to a pathway where I'm going to sin because of it, then I ought not do it. Is this action, this potential action, is it likely to cause spiritual injury to another person? If so, then I need to take the high road And love other people first before I satisfy my own desires. Everybody tracking with me? Uh, And then finally, a third question to consider. Will this action that I potentially may or may not do, is it something that is going to, in other words, can I do this and glorify God while I'm doing it? Would I be okay doing this behavior if while I'm doing it, Christ came again? Or would I be embarrassed to be in the presence of Christ if he came the instant I was involved in this particular decision? Because the Bible says, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you eat, whatever you drink, or whatever you do, Do it all to the what? To the glory of God, which is preeminent in every part of life. Every part of my life ought to bring honor and glory to God. Of course, we're never going to perfectly do that, this side of heaven, in our fallen condition. But it's certainly a great test to apply 
when it comes to making significant choices of my life. And so getting back to the Noah, does all that make sense? Getting back to the Noah, because Noah, for whatever reason, uh, gets drunk and that drunkenness leads him to the further sin of exposure. And then that's where his family gets involved. And this is another picture. Not only did the decision lead Noah to sin, the decision also caused one of his children to sin. And the repercussions for that that son and his family line were tremendously grave. Look at verse 22. And this is the second part of finishing well. Uh, Finishing well... Uh, First of all, means learning to make wise choices. And then secondly, finishing well means living with the right character. Verse 22, and Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it uh, on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward And they did not see their father's uh, nakedness. Now, many of you know that the rest of the story uh, is that this particular action causes Noah to curse um, Ham's son Canaan and his descendants. While the God of Shem and Shem's line, Shem's line is the so-called Semitic line. The line of Sem or Shem uh, are the Semites, the Jews. And that was the line that was to be blessed. And the territory of Japheth, uh, Japheth extended. And so because of that, we're reminded once again that in the kingdom of God, man, character counts. You have to read between the lines here. Because there's not a lot of detail. All we know is that Noah was unhappy when he found out what had happened. And uh, some people look at Ham's action and they say, well, you know, I just don't understand what the big deal is. The details are left out. And so you kind of have to read between the line. One thing we know is that for whatever reason, Ham and ever how it was expressed, Ham showed great disrespect to his father. And the sin is basically, I think, related to his reaction to what he saw in his father because he goes out and starts talking about it. He really becomes a gossip, basically. And if you read between the lines, some have suggested that it was kind of a mocking kind of gossip. So what he doesn't do is just leave well enough alone. He doesn't humbly cover up his father. He goes out and starts blabbing about it to his brothers, likely mocking his father, making fun of his father, insensitive, probably disrespectful. Maybe he delighted in his father's sin, whatever the case might be. And you should never do that. How many of you have known somebody that knew someone who suffered some kind of harm? They had a failure in life. How many of you have known people that seem to take great delight in the failure of other people? The failure of others brought a smile to their face. You know, the Bible teaches that when others weep, we need to weep with them. And when others rejoice, we need to rejoice with them. When others have a measure of success, we, learn, we need to learn to be happy about that, 
rather than become angry about it. And it could well have been that Ham delighted in the failing of his father. And I think that's what got him in trouble. And that's an indication of character or the lack thereof. How you respond to the sin of others. We're real quick about throwing rocks at people that fail. Especially when they're one of us. You know, Christians, the old saying is Christians, uh, Christians are the only people that tend to shoot their wounded. And that's a sad thing ostracizing people that fail. No, you need to learn how to embrace them and love them, be gracious to them as God has been gracious to us without condoning bad behavior. We don't condone bad behavior, but we don't mock and we don't ridicule and we don't rejoice in the failings of others either. And when we do so, we demonstrate a lack of Christ-like character. You see the difference in the other two brothers? how the other two brothers responded. I mean, they hear about this and they're very gentle. They're very sensitive in terms of how they respond to um, the awkwardness of the situation. They take a covering and they go in backwards, careful not to look at their father's nakedness. They don't want to subject him to ridicule. And see, we're left to interpret that that wasn't present in Ham. I mean, that's the only way to interpret that. What the two other brothers did in showing gentleness and sensitivity and respect for their father was exactly lacking in Ham's behavior and in his approach. So when you see the other two brothers, you see this beautiful example of love in action. And that's what the Bible says we're to do. Love one another earnestly because love covers what? A multitude of sins. Love doesn't condone sin, but it, it covers a multitude of sins. In other words, when you love someone, you don't necessarily accept their sin or pat them on the back for their sin, but you don't kick them out of the circle of fellowship either. Uh, these brothers probably didn't condone the sin of their father, but it doesn't, it, they don't expose him. They don't expose him to mockery. They don't laugh at him. They don't encourage anybody else to spread the bad news. And so the object is to straighten the person up, to help them get back on their feet, not to trip them up anymore. So we do that because we know there but for the grace of God go every single one of us, Right? Uh, I'm tickled at people who often say, oh, I'll, that, that would never happen with me. And I'm telling you, the person who says that is just set up that they become probably the most likely person it's going to happen to. Or when they say something like that, this will never happen to me. I'll never let that happen. They're already dealing probably with issues that are troublesome. And that never is probably a mask over issues that they battle with Every day. The point of tonight's passage is simply that it's so very important to live with wisdom, to make wise choices in the will of God for the glory of God. Because <clears throat> when we fail to do that, we put ourselves in a position of failure. And I don't know about you, 
The longer I live, the stronger I want to become. I want to finish the race strong. And the most important thing that you and I can do to ensure that happens is to maintain a daily relationship, a daily spiritual workout with the Lord Jesus Christ. Never take your eyes off Jesus. I love what the writer to Hebrews says in Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and let us lay aside the sin which clings so closely and let us run with what? Endurance, the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, that's the key phrase. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder, the author, and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It's very important for me in the eyes of my family, my church, my Lord, that I finish the race well. Want the last chapter of my life to be the best chapter of my life. Don't you? That's my testimony. And it can be through a living, breathing, abiding relationship with Christ. That's the real measure of success. Not how strong you start, but how well you finish. I say we finish strong for the glory of God. Amen.